a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Our latest episode of Soundtracking is another live event recorded at the British Film Institute in London with writer, director and actor Andy Serkis and musician Nitin Sony. Now the pair have collaborated on several occasions, most recently on Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. Andy's performance capture reimagining of the Jungle Book. It's available to watch now via Netflix and if you haven't seen it already, I highly recommend it. Nitin also provided the score for Breathe. Andy's directorial debut. As always, you'll hear plenty of music from both films during the conversation and plenty more besides, starting with a cue from Mowgli called Campfire. For being here. Oh, two? I never know. I never know. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being here. Um, we've got. Uh, I, I, you can swear if you want. Yeah, straight away. I, wasn't just gonna, I, just wanted, I just wondered what I couldn't, I can't remember. Is that thing that you do where you just, get it out? I like before. to swear straight away. Yeah, swearing is absolutely fine. Right, yeah, okay. absolutely fine. Um, Listen, thanks for being here. There's, there's, there's a, a welcome back to the podcast, actually, because you, we've been lucky that we, we had you on before um, when you were releasing Breathe, which we will talk about and show some fabulous clips. Welcome to Soundtracking, Nitin. Thank you. 
I mean, you definitely deserve your own episode, at least one on your own, because the work that you've done as a, a musician and a composer is, is, is huge, really. But where did this relationship start? How did this relationship start? Well, we just actually worked out um, about five minutes ago that we thought it was... Well, I thought it was Heavenly Sword, yeah, so which is a video game. Which that, was that about 2004, was 2004. It? But actually... It goes back to about 1991 because we were doing, we did a play together which we'd both forgotten about uh, called The Rover. The 90s for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 So, yeah, so we, we worked together in about 1991. Yeah, it was, so. a, it was a production of a, an Afro Ben play called The Rover, which was a play and, and was performed at a very old film studio called Jacob Street Film Studios. And, uh, and it was so during the day we were actually filming it because it was a huge set and in the round space, and then at night we were performing it as a play. So it's a very, very bizarre thing. And I've just found out that Nitin wrote the music yeah, for it, and yeah, I didn't even realise. And, and I was there watching you going through all the rehearsals and, and, and workshops and stuff. Were you in your head going, I want to work with him one day? Yeah, <laughs> I was. <laughs> but, um, and yeah. then how did Heavenly Sword happen? How did that kind of come well, about? Well, I think you you already started working with Tamiman. That's right. So, so in fact, it was just after it was in two thousand and four, and it, I'd just come back from New Zealand, uh, having shot King Kong with Peter Jackson, and um, I was approached by weirdly, it was a really weird connection actually, but by by, by I went to get a mortgage from my house actually, and uh, we, I was sitting there, and um, me and my, my wife Lorraine, and, and this guy was going, and there's twelve point this and twelve point five that percent, and blah blah blah. And can I just show you something? And he turned it round and, and pressed play, and it was a video game trailer, and I thought. This is very weird. This is very strange. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he said, my brother makes video games and he really wants to meet you and, and to talk about using performance capture in video games. At that time, of course, video games were very much about hack and slash and not really much about story and content or yeah. character. So we started talking and um, so this is a rather long-winded story. And um, finally, uh, you know, we got together and it was it was a really amazing script and, and it was a kind of Quite a groundbreaking video game. Yeah, really, and I, I wasn't really a gamer, but you were, <clears throat> weren't you? you were a, yeah, a little you, bit. Yeah, you play a lot of games. But it was, it was. Um, we, we rehearsed it like a like a, a film, and and, uh, and directed all the actors, and then and then when we came to make it, we had to go. Uh, with the technology we didn't have in this country to do to do what we needed to do using performance capture, so took everybody over to New Zealand. When we came back, I couldn't think. I mean, the f- the very first person that I thought of to work with on it because of the subject matter was 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 Nitin, and he just wrote the most incredible music. I mean, and hours. And what was it like writing for a video game? Because I don't think you'd ever done that either. No, it's amazing because it's technically very different to writing for films. So it's it's yeah. actually yeah because you've got to you've got to have you've got to account for all the success and failure paths. So when people are playing these games rather than going doing a wow 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 when somebody actually fails, you've got to, you've actually got that music. That could work. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, you've got to write music that kind of somehow reflects the you know the internal psychology of the person who's playing it as well. So so um, and there, there are techniques to doing that in ways in which so you have to work very closely with the technical team.
about it like that, of kind of your game and journey that you have to take. Yeah, because it's, I mean, how many hours of music? It's, it, it works out to... to be about 30 or 40 hours of music. Yeah. So compared to a normal film, you, you have so many, because you have all the different platforms that you go through. And so, you know, there, there are so many possibilities that you have to account for in the way that you, you write the music, because it's not a linear progression like yeah. a film is. And because you have that amount of music that you have to write, is it is it a lovely thing that you have, you have more, do you have more freedom because you can kind of go for it, really, because you do have that amount of time to write music for? Yeah, and also because the characters in video games are quite, they're more archetypal, I think, than they are in, I don't know why that is, but um, but they are they they're more um, kind of you know you have an evil king who is really clearly evil, and you you have that guy there. So you have <laughs> sorry, but you have um, you know all the characters are very definitely um, you know characters you will have come across before in some form, and so there are there are really strong associations musically with them, and it's it's a lot clearer in terms of how you grasp. I, I suppose what, what who they are and mm. the kind of music you create, and with with film, which is more nuanced, I think. I mean, that was at the time. I don't know. When did you start working on composing for film? That was back in about '93, because I, I I worked on a film which was about an Asian women's refuge um, for the BBC, and it was a film called Flight. And that film, I really enjoyed doing. It. Actually, it, it come from because I was making albums at the same time, mm. um, solo albums, and. And my first album I'd, I'd just done, and uh, this guy, I think his name's Alex Pillay, he, he'd actually heard uh, the music for that and just asked me if I'd write the whole score, which is great. And I used to sit there in my bedroom with a with a video recorder and um, trying to synchronise between what I was doing with the key, you know, with the keyboard and sequences and and whatever I was using to 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 record the music. So it's literally it'd be like that, just kind of <laughs> as opposed to kind of you know the, the way we do things now. But yeah, it was it was it was great doing it. Tracks or music within film for both of you that, that really resonated as a film fan that, that have kind of stuck with you? Uh, Leonard Bernstein's Taxi Driver, I guess, is what um, I've always adored. You mean Bernard Herman? I mean Herman, Bernard yeah. Herman. Yeah. <laughs> Who recorded that? I mean yeah, like, yeah. 
that's the sounds one. a little Different bit like Burns. Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> <laughs> Not. He recorded that with the Scottish Symphony Orchestra. There's really? a little fact for you on that one, yeah. Great sax on that, great sax. Oh, yeah. yeah. Here's the fact. How many people in the audience knew that Andy Serkis was a shit-hot saxophonist? Yeah. Oh, a couple of you. There's the super fans in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been playing the saxophone? Um, actually, uh, since about 13, I think I was about 13. Well, I, started, I started playing the clarinet when I was about seven or eight, and then um, and I was very, very lucky because I had some very... In fact, there's someone in the audience, I think, tonight, who I actually played a lot with. Is Yuki here? I think, you, yeah, anyway, some, some very, very close family friends of mine. Um, and I thought he was here tonight, but perhaps he's not. Um, <laughs> anyway, you came wherever you are. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of exciting for about <laughs> half a second. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, so I, I, started, I started playing with, with some, some neighbours of ours and, uh, and, and just gradually graduated onto the sax. I always loved the sound of the sax. Mm. After Ackerbilk, I think Strangers on the Shore on the clarinet was the first thing I learned. <laughs> tone and he's got as well and so much so that we actually uh, got him playing sax in uh, in breathe and he, he's, he sounds amazing in it so yeah funny you should mention breathe <laughs> that was amazingly seamless oh, that was brilliant and um, because well breathe is the first thing that we as film fans got to see and hear that you'd work together even though 
Mowgli had been was filmed by this point. Is that right? Yes. So that <laughs> the strange old life that it is. Um, so we started shooting Mowgli, or as it was at that point, uh, Jungle Book in uh, 2014, I think it was. Um, and so we'd, we'd we'd been through the whole principal photography uh, part of it, which mm. was a long a long old shoot, um, and we'll come back to that. But um, but then in in the sort of a very very long post production of it all we found ourselves able to shoot this amazing film which had been on our slate at the Imaginarium which is the production company that I, myself and Jonathan Cavendish have yeah. uh, a, a film a personal very personal film about his parents called Breathe and you know it, it, it's the most extraordinary story of, of survival and not just survival but a, a sort of very uplifting response to a tragedy and laughing in the face of of adversity really i suppose um the the, the story is um, that jonathan's parents were very totally in love with each other very happily in love in the 50s uh, turn of the 50s into the 60s and then uh, his father got struck down with polio when they were in africa and he was given a couple of days to live and um, he happened to be in a hospital where a, a, a traveling doctor was able to give him an emergency tracheostomy and then he basically survived went through a big depression was flown back to england and then there was a crux point where he was in a depression and, and Diana, his wife, said, look, he, he'd given up on life, basically. And she said, I want you to choose life. And he he, um, he said, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll choose life on one condition. You get me out of hospital. And no one had ever lived with his condition outside of the hospital system with, with polio. So it's about, an, it's about them choosing to go on this adventure, living sort of two minutes away from death, but living life to the full. And, and you know, I absolutely... Well, we, I, you know, we, we, we sent you... What did we send you? Cut. We sent you a cut yeah, of the, yeah. the yeah. film. And I couldn't think of anyone, again, of anyone else I'd rather work with uh, than Nitin on it. It required a very delicate sort of soundscape mm. and, and musical landscape, which travels through years. It travels emotionally, you know, through huge kind of peaks and troughs. Continents. Um, through continents. Mm. And uh, it, it needed to be... You know, it needed to swell. It needed to, you know, be uplifting, but it all, but also very, very delicate because a lot of the the scenes are, are, are very, you know, Andrew Garfield and Claire Foy magnificently act together, and 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 it was very deft what they were doing. So, I mean, it was a, it was a, it, the music I think was a huge challenge. <laughs> quite often try to find a, a theme you know and some kind of overture or, or something that kind of that I can pull apart in different ways and and interpret in different ways through through a film but it needs to feel like um I, I need to find a melody that captures the essence of the main characters and their journey so it was a case of just sitting down at a piano and just and just 
playing around, which is what I did with Mowgli as well. I mean, it's kind of, um, I find that's the best way to approach things from the beginning. We've got a clip here from, um, there's, a, there's a lovely theme that, like you say, that kind of, it, it almost represents their love that kind of comes in and out of the film, and there's a, uh, we can hear part of that right now. You can't possibly marry him, Diana. He's practically a stranger. Is he stranger than us, do you think? Not much in it? Has he got any money at all? No. It's not as if you don't have other options. What about that Hugh? Didn't he have a castle in Scotland? Mind you, who wants to live in Scotland? Oh, do shut up. She's talking about going to live in Kenya, for God's Didn't sake. Tell me to shut up. Diana? Please stop going round and round and concentrate. This is your future life we're talking about. It's your future happiness. The thing is, I just know this is it. talk about the music I love the reaction the beautiful just kind of feels such a genuine reaction there and I kind of almost think that Andrew's driving of that plane looks terrifying and it was <laughs> genuinely clear going yeah I think I'm all right <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they, they were they were they were truly as characters they truly kind of were totally in love with each mm. other I mean it was it was an amazing experience I mean their chemistry was remarkable in that film you know it was it was in a really extraordinary film for the fact that what we wanted to do at the beginning which is the music that you heard there was was very much lead the audience into a sense of this is going to be a very romantic very very nostalgic um piece of, of filmmaking and sort of lead them to think it's going to be like a out of africa or or a, you know and uh, and before before the tragedy hits and that and so that was the purpose of the music at the front was to to lull you into this kind of sense of it being a a, a, a you know real nostalgia trip feels like a swelling heart mm. almost when you see that when that it's so beautiful that shot, the shot of the plane, and then the music just complements it so beautifully. Yeah, I mean the the scenes. I mean you can see they're, they're gorgeous scenes, so they they spoke so eloquently in themselves. So so it wasn't difficult to find a, a musical vocabulary that kind of went with them. But how it starts, like you say, that simplicity of the piano, that then it kind of grows. Yeah, yeah, literally that. Yeah. yeah. So so and then you know um, I'll kind of get into mocking things up as well with um, with you know virtual instruments and then we went to air studios and recorded with a with strings there so yeah and andy's brilliant sex fan which you heard there actually what what was brilliant about working on that was was you know talking about that sort of sparsity at times you know going or going from that full sound to, to being sparse i mean i remember right up until the very very last day of the mix there was one piece of music mm. which we took out literally the, yeah. you know, on our very very last day and what was so great what's so great about knitting as a, as a 
an extraordinary musician, but also a brilliant collaborator, is that to take music out that you've written and be happy for it to be out. Because do you remember we, yeah, yeah. you know, it was really. Do you remember that scene? Um, yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. It so really the scene between them. Yeah, and later on in the yeah. movie, and yeah. it really needed to just have not have. It needed yeah. to have silence, and there was a beautiful piece of music, and it was just like, God, are we really going to take this out? And and actually, it, it the, you know, it, the counterpoint of it not being there really kind of did yeah. work. So that no, made sense. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like when it's you... better when your music wasn't there, in fact. Yeah, yeah generally. I find that actually in most things. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think it's, it's also about pacing things. You know, yeah. for me, um, you know, silence is actually a great way to frame, to, to frame music and to frame how we absorb the, the psychology of music. You know, I mean, from listening to Miles Davis when I was a kid, you know, who was a master of how, how to control silence and sound. And I think um, I've always, you know, thought that my favourite films are when when it's very judged where the, where to place the music as opposed to just a wall of continuous sound. Yeah, we have a couple more clips from from Breathe, and the next one is is a lovely little scene. And I know that you, because temp temp in a, a film can be tricky for composers sometimes in terms of okay, I've temped the film, can you make it sound a little bit like this? But that wasn't the case with what you temped the scene with because it was more about the comedic side of it almost. I think, or correct me if I'm wrong, but Absolutely. it was the Great Escape that you that you tempted with. Yeah, or yeah, what was, was it? it? Yeah, I think it was. It was something like. That. So basically, there's a turning point in the film where, where, where the moment I was describing earlier, where where she says, where he, he, she says, "How can I get you to choose life?" And he says, "Get me out of hospital." And so, and, and and we wanted this sort of upturn in the film where it becomes almost like a an Ealing comedy, you know, or a yeah. sort of a, a caper movie mm-hmm. where they're literally trying to get him out. And, they, and it, the fact of the matter is true; they literally legged it out of the hospital. <laughs> and uh, and and this was the piece of music that that uh, that Nissen came up with for it, which is which is amazing. Conversations that you specifically had, like, like basically what you just told us there about what you're, you know, you're looking for for that specific scene. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, working with Andy, he he's musically, you know, obviously because he's a sax player, but also he's he's got a great sense of musicality in the way he thinks. But um, it's about finding common references, you know, in terms of vocabulary and how we how we kind of define that. And I think also the characterization. There's so many things you have to take into account, but I kind of liked that kind of spoons type thing. There was something in my head that was kind of comical about that. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have to kind of think about the, the period that it's in. Mm. You have to think about um, the pacing of it, but also you don't want it to, to stand away to, or, or to stand out as too different from the rest of the score. There's a lot of kind of factors that you have to take into account. 
to come up with something like that. But uh, but I really enjoyed it. It was great. And I guess as well because you had the luxury of Jonathan and his mum mm. in terms of you know this was their story, and there was a lot of music around in their world, and yeah. genuinely you wanted to you know incorporate that into to the film but also speaking to them about how the sound of the film would be i guess yeah i mean it was remarkable so diana is is still around um and she's very much around and mm. uh, and and they are uh, they're an incredible unit actually jonathan and, and, and diana so to have and and we had that some of the family members who were very very uh, active in 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 passing down the, all the stories and 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 a lot of it i mean t- there isn't really anything in the movie that isn't that didn't actually happen remarkably i mean it is it is a, a really extraordinary journey they went on so they, they they fueled us with with just tons of and tons of stories and and like you say the tone and the musicality at the time and the, what they were listening to and so on. So it was it was it was just a one you know it was a, it was actually a truly wonderful experience making that movie really. Because it's a tr- is it true love the the Grace true Kelly love, and yeah. Bing Crosby track that's that was in. their favourite song. That's the one that we you know we had to keep in the movie but that which wasn't original. Yeah. Sometimes wind blows. Honeymooners at last alone Feeling far above par Oh, how lucky we are While I give to you And you give to me Well, with this with this um, soundtrack and, and the score that you created, that you were able to really kind of pull on the, the wonderful instrumentalist that you are in terms of the different type of instruments that you play and the different mm-hmm. genres of music that you can play. Flamenco is a big thing of yours. I've seen you play. You're amazing, and that must be quite nice to be able to kind of explore that as well. With with it not being a you know as people would see a traditional score of it just being strings and orchestration sort of thing. And, and yeah, it was nice, and there, there were lots of moments that you know i mean there was for example a garden party scene where they wanted something andy wanted something that kind of felt a little bit burnt back rack (laughs) 
And so that was nice to actually come up with something like that. But then there was one scene that you might be referring to, which was in Spain. And I think you'd, you'd recorded some diegetic music with some actual uh, performers in, in Spain, some, some flamenco players. And then I had to write music uh, that kind of segued into that. Um, so it was kind of trying to keep... Uh, true to that feeling of being in Spain, but again, trying to also make it sit with the rest of the score. So they finally, Robin, uh, Diana's husband, uh, they, they, they decide to go abroad for the first time. And it's and it's a really dangerous thing. And she's like, this is such a bad idea to go abroad when you, you're living on a respirator. If anything goes wrong, we're done, you know. And uh, they had this emergency sort of bag which they could pump air to should, should the respirator break down. But, you know, to travel to another country in the you know in the you know late 1960s early 70s uh, was it was truly truly risking it and uh, so that's that's what, that's what leads into this wow hey god robin oh robin oh you really mean it don't you no, how on earth do we go to Spain? Well, by a plane, of course. Darling, how do we get you on the plane? It only, on, on that, I've just remembered, it only turns, I only put in the flamenco bit towards the back end of that in the transition, but I, I, it kind of worked from what came before and then, and then I kind of brought in the flamenco stuff, so it kind of made a bit more sense. Totally. What do you put on your, um, down as your occupation when you're, when you're filling out a form? <laughs> I mean, you've so many things. That's you know. I mean, what do you... I, I, honestly, I, I struggle to think there of anything that knitting can't do. It's just <laughs> you. the most <laughs> sickening polymath of all time. You know, really, honestly, truly, uh, you know, brilliant writer, brilliant comedian, brilliant performer, brilliant. You know, so many albums, com film composer, you know, activist. Uh, it, it really is quite. That's really can genius. I, yeah. Before we move on to um, to talking about um, 
Mowgli. I wanted to ask if you don't mind about Last Days of, of Meaning with John Hart, if you would yeah. mind, which is a, a an album that well, you released back in 2011. Yeah. And just talk a little bit about that experience and how yeah. that came about. I was made a fellow at Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, um, Paul McCartney's thing, and I'd, I'd worked with Paul McCartney before, and I'd, I, I was made a, a fellow of that, and that's where I met John Hurt and his, and his wife, Anwin, and we got on really well. And um, he became a really good friend. And we worked on uh, a series called The Human Planet um, together for the BBC, and, um, and in fact, it, I, I'd suggested him for, for, to be the narrator for that, which he did so mm. brilliantly. And then we just got on well, and and I had written a character, which is so weird when I look at it now, because the character was called Donald Meaning. And I had this, and it's 2011, and I had him as this kind of weird parochial guy who was scared of immigrants. And, and I had, and if you see the front cover of the album, it may look a little bit like a certain person. And I had not got that in my head. And it's kind of eerie to me. Yeah. But anyway, but I got uh, John Hurt into play this character and um it's a little bit kind of craps last tapes kind of thing you know um the beckett play sick of it stupid games i'm not your toy your plaything. you had your time i gave you your chances you can't manipulate me anymore not now anyway what's that bloody noise hello Stop banging, it's late! Bloody immigrants. Bloody terrorists. Bloody... Bloody freezing in here. I bet if I blew... Yeah, condensation on my breath. I should take a photo of that. I will show the lot of them. The council, stupid politicians. When the papers see, then they'll all be out. Scandalous. Can't treat an old man like that. I'm old. Cold. Old and cold. Rotting in mould. Boldly listening to stories untold. With no songs to sing. And no one to hold. So I kind of wanted to um, bring someone in who could, who had that kind of gravitas, who could play this character, and I used it. I mean, it was such a weird experimental album. I don't know what to make of it now or what anyone else does, but for me, I just like doing things that feel right, and and I made it at the time, and it was kind of... um, It's interesting listening back to it now because it feels more relevant now than it did then, but it's... um, Yeah, so he was incredible, and I actually kind of got to write his lines and and work with him and... uh, yeah, what an amazing privilege. And 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 we we stayed friends. Um, you know, I I went to the hospital just a couple of weeks before he passed away, and I was I was wheeling him around in his wheelchair, and play, we we had a great game of chess. And uh, he was an amazing human being. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, one of my favourite people. How bloody weird is that? It? She sends me that after how long is it now? Perhaps some gloves or socks. Typical. 
She leaves, fine. She feels bad, fine. So all she can do, just, just rubbish. I haven't got the... What's that? Hello? Who's there? Anyway. Anyway. Here it is now. There's nothing else. Perhaps another one. What was it? Press down. Talking about working with amazing people, um, we're going to talk about Mowgli next, and the performances that you've got from your cast and their performance capture in this is just extraordinary. Um, and the way that these 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 animals in particular are really brought to life and the the emotions that they convey. And I imagine that for you know these are these are pretty well established names that we're talking about Christian Bale and, and the likes. But you're the king of that world in terms of what you've done for that world and what you've created over the years is just extraordinary. And in particular for me, Caesar, that character that we saw through a number of films and seeing that character oh, develop so emotional yeah. but um when you are working with actors who maybe haven't done that type of work before do you have to you know not just direct in them but but direct them specifically for that side of things or i mean it's very interesting because a lot of people have kind of misconceptions about what performance mm, capture yeah. is and and uh, and they think that it's some sort of uh, you have to overact or pantomime or sort of behave in a particular kind of way but or, or of course like if you're playing uh, animals then you have to observe and you have to observe their behavior and so on but when we sat around for the for the table read of of Mowgli and you know you've, we've got you know Kate Blanchett's there and Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Hollander and Naomi Harris and uh, you know just the whole the whole gang and they're and they're all going what's the secret of performance capture and i go you know the the truth is there is no secret about it it's just acting it's just creating a character and what you're doing is you are meeting the 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 creature that you're playing so so yes by all means go ahead and 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 really study and observe and and find some physicality that 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 works towards the you know the the the, the animal that you're playing but you're not playing a panther. You're playing Bagheera. So who is Bagheera, and what? And 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 actually, that finally comes down to character choices about about. And they all they're all real anthropomorphizations of of animals anyway. So so they 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 were fr they felt more kind of freed up after that. And I do I do think that you know it only takes a very short space of time for an actor to you know they think oh my gosh I'm going to be wearing a suit and dots all over my face and, and a head mounted camera and I'm going to feel really weird and it literally takes about five minutes before you're looking into the eyes of another actor and you're just communicating with them as the character and it's so it's a very you know the, the my job in that case was to just sort of make people just relax and concentrate on 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 the roles that they're playing which they just took to like ducks to water and they <laughs> sort of um the, and, and the amazing different kind of physical range of what people were doing, mm. uh, of what people wanted to do and ended up doing. I mean, Peter Mullen, who was playing Aquila, the you know the Wolfpack leader, totally stoic, didn't move a muscle, was just very very solid, and everything was in his eyes and in his face. Through to Tom Hollander, who's playing Tabaki, mm. this whirling dervish kind of hyena who was had crutches and was you know scrambling around and flying about all over the place. And Benedict, of course, playing Shere Khan, the tiger, and huge physicality, and found this kind of you know the voice that came into what he was doing was you know you've heard this thing about you know when he says man cub he was man cub you know it was just like it was it was just great <laughs> to see different people's responses to 
how you can bring a character to life. Yeah. You know. Was it easy to cast? It was very easy to cast. I mean, I mean, the, the great thing is that we had these amazing actors who who all wanted to have a go. They all wanted to to experience, a, a, you know, something that something different yeah. in their careers. You know, where where they got to where it was just like very very different from doing sort of maybe a, a sort of another version of themselves in a way it was it was really required them to 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 dig deep and and to make fools of themselves and 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 they all went for it and and came up with with you know as I'm glad you're saying you know kind of very very truthful emotional beautiful uh, big performances mm. yeah because you were in charge, were you like, okay, I am going, I'm, I'm going to go with Baloo. I want to be Baloo. <laughs> in actual fact, in actual fact, no. That, 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 you know what? We looked, we we looked around because I wasn't going to be in it because I knew really? I had my hands full. I wasn't going to be in it at all. No, and uh, oh. I knew it was a big operation and it was going to take mm. all my sort of uh, headspace as a director. But we we asked a few actors, and they, I think. People were kind of like, mm, Baloo's sort of like, of all of the characters that are sort of memorable from the Disney one, I think that's the one that people remember. Mm. And, and I think that there was something kind of maybe scary about doing that. And then, so we, we didn't have any response to that character when we were casting it. So we ended up all looking at each other and getting close to the time when we were about to shoot. And, and someone said, well, why, Andy, why don't, you, why don't you do it? And I'm like, I'll go on there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so it was... <laughs> Um, I've got a little video which you two are very scared about me showing. I've got to thank Catherine, who's in the audience, for giving it to me. You can tell that it's been slightly filmed sort of inconspicuously, like behind a couple of bottles of water. Um, this was in South Africa, is this right? Yes, where we shot, where we shot uh, Mowgli on, on, on location. Yeah. yeah, and this is a bit of, I guess, downtime in what looks like a conference suite. Um, but let's, let's take a look. This is just the two of them kind of hanging out and jamming. Here we go. Your little face at the that. end, <laughs> you know, secretly filming. Um, but I mean, that's lovely. But I know that there was a there was a lot of research and prep going that went into just that one piece, just of music. that one piece of music for um, <laughs> for Mowgli because we were working together on a on a, a TV show, and you came back one week and you were like you'd been injured from a research trip <laughs> with Andy to, yes. was it South, South Africa? Yes, it was, yeah. What yeah. Did I? So Andy um, has this wonderful way with understatement where he will say something like, um, would you like to join me on, on the nature walk? And I thought, I'd, you know, images of Kew Gardens come to mind. I thought, oh, that's lovely, yeah, of course, I'd love to. So um, so I get to his, his, his place, his apartment, and he just goes, oh, hang on a minute, maybe you should, change your shoes i've got some hiking boots for you and um i went okay great so i'm wearing these hiking boots that i, I didn't actually notice were cutting into my leg at the time but um but we were we kind of i think i don't know how many hours it was later but but quite a few hours later we we were still on the side of some kind of a a rock thing with with lots of foliage and Andy had handed me a stick to fight my way through and um and then we got um Jonathan somebody called me from, from on my phone <laughs> while I was trying to light my way so that I didn't actually fall down a crevice of something and um and John and, and whoever it was said um should we not be sending out a search party for you right now because it's pitch black and um I said 
Andy, are you right? Do you know where we? He said, "Yeah, we're fine." So I was like, "No, we're okay." Can I can I just um, get you off the phone now because I need to see uh, how I'm going to jump over this. <laughs> so it was just quite it was just quite a mad experience. But what happened was when I got back to the because Andy climbs regularly and I don't, and uh, we got back to his um, his his Jeep uh, in the end, which was one of the greatest moments of my life. And, uh, <laughs> I remember getting in the jeep and um, and and we got to Andy's place and uh, I was with the driver and uh, Andy Andy said oh that was great I said that's amazing really enjoyed that Andy goes into his apartment I just screamed at the top of my voice in absolute agony and um, yeah so I didn't I didn't tell Andy about that. <laughs> And the yeah. purpose of the hike was... Just torture. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was just um, and bonding, which we, actually we did. <laughs> we, actually, we had some really good conversations. In, very quite in-depth in, conversations. Yeah, as we walked through the gates of hell. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did you start with, with the music and, and what you wanted for, for, for Mowgli? Mowgli, again, was... was I knew that Nishim was the only person who could, who could write this score, and uh, just knowing his his breadth and scope and scale of of understanding of world music and and the sort of sounds that we wanted for for a piece which wasn't going to be a typical kind of blockbuster movie. This was this was going to be always it, our our version of Jungle Book Mowgli was always going to be a slightly darker uh, look at the world of, of Rudyard Kipling and his whole uh, the time the placement of it very much making it of India, making it feel you know that it really did belong to that it was an Indian story and that and that we when we first started to talk about it it was the idea of creating a soundscape so that the music could sort of talk to the sound of the jungle really so that it was so that you could slip seamlessly between you know pick up on on birdsong or, or insects or I mean you'd, you'd written you'd actually written a symphony for for an, for animal animals, aren't you? The, the yeah, yeah, symphony, I'd done because I've worked a lot. On... Yeah, I mean, I worked a lot with the BBC with um, Natural History Unit. So I'd done Human Planet. I did Wonders of the Monsoon, so, which yeah. I think we used some of that. And then, um, and then I'd done um, something called, uh, which had been called Natural World Symphony. And then uh, I also did something called Animal Symphony. So yeah, I've, I've worked a lot with. Can you tell me about about because I, I remember watching watching that. that which the, one? The, the Animal Symphony one with the recording yeah. of the birds and all of that and getting. Oh yeah, yeah. That was with Chris Packham. Yeah, with, with that. So, so yeah. I mean, we because I I had to write something in the um, which actually got across um, you know uh, the the sounds of uh, that a cuckoo makes, and and actually uh, no, it wasn't a cuckoo. It was a nightingale. I don't know why I lied just then. Um, but, <laughs> so it was that could be the next wire. episode. <laughs> so yeah, it was a nightingale, and I remember being with Chris Packham, and uh, and he was kind of recording these amazing sounds and. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, there's this kind of romanticised view of, of what a nightingale would sound like, but it's nothing like a nightingale sounds. I mean, nightingale will make crazy random noises and do all kinds of things that play with your sense of um, perception of sound. And, and there is a musicality to it that's really weird. So actually trying to capture that in, in, in a real orchestrated piece of music was quite interesting. <laughs> Thank you. 
But I mean, you know, because I'd done a few of, a few things. I mean, there was um, there was one scene which uh, was from Wonders of the Monsoon, which I think uses temp, where I think they'd been talking about you know Jungle Book itself, and they they made that analogy with some of the animals that were there. So it was it, it was quite handy to be able to use some of those cues as references. <laughs> Their idea of kind of having themes for the different characters as well, and, and, and or not. It was thematic, but it was. I mean, we wanted that we wanted to eventually find a theme for Mowgli for sure, which which got. I mean, that that was such an incredible moment, and it was quite late on actually. We'd been. I mean, but we talked about this movie. This this movie took a long time to make. It took five years to make, and sort of three. And we'd started talking right at the beginning about it. But it was literally in the fourth year, I think it was, mm. that, that, that knitting... I don't know how you did it, but, but, but I think you'd sat down and you'd, put, you'd watched lots of clips or you'd put lots of Mowgli clips together. Mm. But he sent me this piece of music and I was actually away having a break and I was on holiday in Italy and, uh, you know, this came through on my phone and I played it and it was, it was just extraordinary and I remember kind of just almost I was with Lorraine my wife and we I, we, I said you've got to listen to this and it was mm. just and we practically both wept it was just bang on because the, our Mowgli needed to be uh, needed to be he's an outsider and he is an outsider and uh, he is other and he grows up torn between these two worlds of, of, of animal and of man and not no, he's at a very tender age where he's not quite knowing how he's placing himself in the world and and yet so there's a kind of there's a there's a there's definitely the sort of the wiliness and adventurousness and the heroic journey that he's going to go on but there's also this underlying kind of vulnerability and 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 it just all came out in this this extraordinary piece
this is one of the clips we were actually able to get that's got a, a really kind of that building music and, and also how the music is kind of intertwined with the action as well and kind of the real sounds of what's going on in and around the scene. So let's play this one. If you haven't seen it yet, it's it's so great. And that was nice because it let us see quite a few of the, the characters as well. And yeah. that little tiny subtle injection of like the snake charmer sound sort of thing as well. There's there's so much in there. I mean, I was lucky enough to work with some great musicians from India, but I'd, I'd written all those melodies and so on. And um, one of the instruments is actually, towards the end, is called a swaleen, but I put it together with another well-known uh, classical instrument called a sarangi. And it really has that kind of uh, movement of a snake in the way that the melodies work and, and uh, the way you can play the melodies as well. So that's a particular rag as well, which is an Indian classical rag called Rag Bhairavi, which is quite a melancholic rag. It was just about how that blended in with the rest of it. the job for you when you get to record them you know in, in a big studio where everything's kind of been recorded live and things is that oh i mean the air studios with an 87 piece orchestra is, is incredible oh, i mean you you were there for oh, that it's just it was just remarkable it is it's when you know it's such a satisfying beautiful moment of the filmmaking process where you know the picture's locked you're just, and you're concentrating on this other thing all of a sudden which is this immense sound and, uh, and like you say with with the orchestra and, and uh, they love they were they were the the, the, the um the musicians just were so into it as well they really it was be it was beautiful it was a really lovely experience that wasn't it mm, yeah it was amazing
we, we can't not talk about um, sex, drugs and, and rock and roll and your incredible performances as, as Ian Dury. And I know you're a big fan of, of his as well and whether that going into it kind of made it easier because you you knew him to a point. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually been very fortunate in, in um, work, working with him very briefly. Um, he was We, we were going to do a play uh, called The Queen and I. Um, we were working, workshopping, based on the Sue Townsend uh, novel about the Queen being rehoused on a council estate in Leicester. And um, in fact, there's a TV version of it done this, this Christmas just past. And but anyway, there was going to be a, a, a play version, and, and Ian was writing the music. And uh, but it was a, it was a particular point in his life where he was he was at his angriest, I think. And he had been a massive uh, kind of hero of mine. And but but when I actually did meet him and work with him, he was very very cantankerous and 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 very very drunk a lot of the time. But but you know, magnificent all the all the same. Um, uh, he was totally inspiring, and uh, I think one of the one of the most scary uh, moments of making that film was literally the first thing I did, which was was uh, we fortunately got to record all of the songs with the original Blockheads, the ones that are still around. And um, so my first day of meeting them was to go in. Uh, I'd been working on the character for about six months, so I was I'd lost a lot of weight, and I was kind of get, really getting into the zone. And um, I turned up on the first day, and and we recorded over two days. We recorded eighteen Ian Dury songs with the Blockheads in in this really crappy old recording studio. And uh, I, the first time I opened my mouth, it was just like, oh, here we go. You know, uh, it was absolutely terrifying because they were they could either have just all turned around and kind of gone. What are you playing at? You know, or you know, and and fortunately they didn't. Fortunately, um, they didn't, which gave me the confidence to go on. But it was, but it was a remarkable journey. And and again, his family were very, uh, Ian's family, um, his son Baxter and 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 daughter Jemima and and you know wife Sophie were. were Opened their hearts to. They loved the script. They loved the story. Matt Whitecross, of course, brilliant director. Mm. Um, you know, we and Paul Virag who wrote the script. We we all had such a relationship with them, and it was a it was a, that was a really great journey. Actually, that that film that was a remarkable journey. How do you feel about watching yourself back? Because we've got a clip if you want. Oh my there. god! <laughs> oh, if you have to. Yeah. <laughs> this is courtesy of Matt Whitecross, by the way. He's oh, oh, is it? Over. Yeah. So this is a bit. Oh, special. is this it? This is actually. You know, this is the bit coming up next, but oh, this yeah. is pretty special. Oh, no, man. 
portfolio's a nasty business, really. Still, looking on the bright side, you do get a bit of reading done. <laughs> <laughs> That was that was the one song that got cut from the movie. Actually, it's nice to get. Yeah, it is. It's lovely. Yeah, it's, it's so great. Kind of him to, it's brilliant to send that over. Yeah. Um, can I talk just a little bit about working with with a, an amazing collection of directors and and what you've taken from that? Whether it's you know Christopher Nolan, Peter Jackson, John Landis. There's so there's so many. It's an amazing list of people. Matt, obviously, as well. If you do take things from from those experiences of of working with those people in terms of as a director and and then how that then transfers to user director in any way. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, my, one of my greatest sort of um, kind of alliances and uh, collaborations, I suppose, has obviously been with Peter Jackson over many, many years. We've done, gosh, I mean, so many mm. films together. Um, Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Hobbit trilogy, and Tintin and King yeah. Kong. And, and, and he is a remarkable director for the fact that not only a visionary, of course, and but he is an incredibly compassionate and generous human being, and also a brilliant enabler and 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 really values um, what what everyone has to offer and get and therefore gets one hundred and fifty percent out of people because he allow he he's not a sort of despot as a director. You know, there are some who are who are very tough and and you know everyone to their own, but he is very much an open and he'll listen to everybody's opinions and and he also. Uh, so, so one of the, I think one of the greatest things I learned about directing from from another director is 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 that is valuing everyone's opinion and, and collaborating and allowing people to bring their best, their very very best to the table, and not feeling that that you have to, uh, although you're finally helming it and you're you're kind of overseeing it, that you, that you're in some way, uh, you know, you, you don't have to know all the answers. And in fact, it's better to not know all the answers because having twelve people, hundred people in a room, whatever, you know, you're going to get so many. Great, great things. Um, it, it just the way that he supports performance with camera, I've always, you know, ever since going back to his early films, Heavenly Creatures being one, I remember seeing that and thinking if ever I was to direct a movie, I, I would, I think I'd probably want to direct it like that, you know, just just the way he, he literally moves the camera in a beautiful dance with, and, and at the same time, garner, you know, garners these extraordinary performances from people, which are totally in sync with the way the camera moves. And I, so, so yeah, I mean, I think he, he's obviously a, a, been a huge impact, and he gave me a, a huge break uh, directing the second unit on The Hobbit. So, so which was I shot for two hundred days under his supervision and to his, you know, creativity, and that was an amazing uh, experience. What's next, directing wise? Uh, so we are making Animal Farm. Next, Amazing. Um, uh, which is uh, hopefully going to happen towards the end of this year. That, there are other things, but I'm not going <laughs> to divulge them right at the second. Uh, but yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, we're, we're, we're making that with, with uh, Netflix. So who, who are great and have been really great with uh, Mowgli. So very excited. To we, from the people that we've spoken to on, on the podcast that have, that have worked with, it comes with an immense amount of creative freedom in terms of, you know, they kind of go, yep. Go and make what you want to make. That's absolutely right. They really do trust their filmmakers. They they enable you to to fulfil your vision. Um, they're they're very fat hands off unless things are going horribly wrong, I guess. Um, so yeah, they're they're an amazing amazing. Uh, they come from film, you know. That that that's the important thing to remember with with all the talk about streaming versus film and the controversies that 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 sort of lie within. But but actually, the people at Netflix really do come from film, and they. 
and they want to have that uh, dual ambition of allowing yes of course you know to you know driving audiences to watch on their streaming service but but at the same time you know having their films in cinemas so that audiences can go and watch and have them both be uh, complementary to each other. Yeah. Nick, what about for you? What's next, film-wise? Um, oh, film-wise. Um, well, I just come back from LA, so I'm, I, I, I was talking about um, different films. I'm actually the films that I'm I've talked about. I'm not allowed. To, I'm not allowed to talk about. But um, but at the moment, I've got Traitors going on at the moment, which is on Channel uh, Channel Four. But this year is really also focusing on. We're commemorating a, an album I did ages ago called Beyond Skin, uh, which was about 20 years ago. So we're doing that at the Royal Albert Hall uh, this year in September, which I'm excited about. And we're going to perform it through in its entirety as a live band, um, which should be really cool. But, but I mean, yeah, there's a few series, and, um, and but we're in the middle of talking about them. So, yeah. And then actually just did get off a flight from LA this morning. So thank you so much for being here. Like, I'm so glad it wasn't delayed. And thank you with all the jet lag and stuff as well. Thank you so much for your time. It's just really wonderful to chat to you. Thank you guys for giving up some of your Friday nights as well. Really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, huge round of applause for our fantastic guests. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you. Twenty-ninth at 5:29 a.m., the gadget turned the pre-dawn sky as bright as the sun, as the first atomic mushroom cloud rose above the horizon. Knitting Sony, that's the title track from his 1999 album Beyond Skin, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking Live with Knitting and Andy Circus. My huge thanks to both Andy and Knitting for taking the time to join me at the BFI of a Friday night, and also to everyone for making us feel so very welcome. Mowgli Legend of the Jungle is available via Netflix now, and our next BFI Live event will be in May. Search for Soundtracking on Spotify to find a playlist for this show featuring the tracks we featured in the order they appear. And do head to iTunes or edithbowman.com to subscribe to the podcast and catch up with all of our previous episodes. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Soundtracking UK. 
Next up, I'm joined by screenwriter Nicole Taylor, director Tom Harper and actress Jessie Buckley to discuss their wonderful new film, Wild Rose. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.